Continuing our discussions of the great themes of Scripture that are summarized in the book of Revelation and with the principle being, the book of Revelation is not entirely an impenetrable mystery if you approach it from the angle that it represents the the summary, the summation uh, of what was established in the beginning of Scripture and maintained all the way throughout Scripture through types, shadows, allegories um, and specific references. We talked then about the first theme of the man in the image and likeness of God. The second great theme of Scripture, which is also summarized in the book of Revelation, is the opposition to the man in the image and likeness of God. That opposition is the craft of Satan. That being who in creation has taken on the role of opposing the saints. Now, in some of the messages of recent note, we talked about how the enemy opposes the Son. From the Garden of Eden, we saw his opposition of the Son. We saw his opposition of the Son when he engaged Christ in the wilderness. We saw how he intends to oppose the Son who will arise in the last days. And so in the book of Revelation, there is the reference to that Son as He appears and the form of the opposition. That Son appears as the man-child or the fully mature Son of God and the opposition sees the enemy presented as a great dragon with immense influence over mankind and over the systems of the cosmos, using them as his weapon, his tail drawing a third of the stars of the heavens, to create an hegemony, an environment in which he has dominant control with the intent to suppress the saints. to to actually uh, destroy the saints if he could. This of course is the pattern, whether we're talking about Moses, Christ or the man at the end of the age. Uh, His intents are very clear and very obvious. Now heaven records the efforts of the enemy to control, to manipulate and ultimately to destroy the saints if he could. If it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. And there is a culmination of this at the end of the age. But it's, again, it's culminations, it's not beginnings. So there are different things that present the opposition of the enemy to the man in the image and likeness of God. And the pattern of that 
started in the garden tends to follow the ark of Israel, tends to follow the historical trajectory of Israel because it is a type and shadow, Israel being a type and shadow of that kingdom that arises at the end of the age. The, the, the similarities to the forming of the kingdom of Israel, to the forming of the kingdom of heaven on the earth are obvious and notable. Twelve sons following a promise from Abraham, from God to Abraham, twelve sons being the foundation of a nation. The descendant of Abraham concerning whom the promise is specifically given, uh, or to whom the promise is specifically given, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, comes forth in the fullness of time uh, and he is given twelve disciples like the twelve sons. And whereas a natural nation is established according to the promise given to Abraham, and a natural nation on the basis of twelve patriarchs beginning with the sons of Jacob, so the one who actually has the promise, the one for whose benefit the promise was given to Abraham, when he comes forth he forms not a natural nation but a spiritual nation because this is even what the promise said, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Earlier we talked about the inevitability of the kingdom of heaven being being comprised of people of every nation, tribe, tongue or or language. So that inevitability is, is clearly delineated. Now, the opposition to that follows, as I said, follows the arc of Israel's own history and there are two principal examples of that where the whole nation was involved in this kind of, or subject to this kind of opposition. One was Egypt and the other was Babylon and both of those are set pieces to describe the final arrival on the earth of the formed and functional opposition to the sons of God, to the man in the image and likeness of God. And so Babylon and Egypt, or rather Egypt and Babylon to follow the chronology of it. Egypt is a type of economic slavery, economic slavery, there Israel is forced to work for uh, harsh taskmasters who doesn't care whether they fall in the mud pits and their blood is mixed in with mortar. This is a type, you see, of a kind of kind of kingdom that consumes human beings for economic bases, for economic purposes. The 
kingdom of Babylon, in which Israel was secondarily enslaved, is a type of religious enslavement. So you have economic enslavement, religious enslavement. Uh, Religious enslavements are about your identity, because a man's identity is derived, or a person's identity, is derived from who his father is. If you present his father falsely, he cannot know who he is. And a religious identity presents God falsely, and it will enslave mankind so long as they do not know who God is. Now if you look at the temptations of Jesus, just like we talked about before, uh, both the temptations of Jesus and uh, the temptation of Adam, the first and the last Adam, these are the first two things. Egypt is first, so it's about bread, it's about economic slavery, it's about the sweat of your brow determining your economic viability. In the garden, Satan came in and his first thing was, is there anything to eat around here? And when he doesn't prevail on that, he moves to his second uh, thing, which is to attempt to present God falsely. God told you not to eat of this tree, because the truth is, he's telling Adam and Eve, God knew that if you ate of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be able to be independent of God. You yourselves shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He trots out the same argument with Christ. Command that these stones be made bread. The Egyptian model, if you like. Your identity depends upon, I mean, your, your, your economics depends upon your ability to turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. This is the subtlety of his approach. He comes by an appeal to the purient interest of man at the most basic level, at the nadir of it, and that is, supply your own self, be your own God. That's the the model of Egypt. Babylon is what you move to when Egypt, when the temptation to be Egyptian doesn't work, you move to Babylon. And so, as we said in the case of Adam and Eve, let me tell you why God has not uh, allowed you to eat of this tree, so falsely presenting God. With Christ falsely presenting God, if you are the Son of God, and this he says in the context of taking him up to the pinnacle of the religious expression in the world in that time, the pinnacle of the temple, the pinnacle of the harion, H-E-I-R-O-N, 
of the, of the building. Because you see, he wants Jesus to think of himself as an expression of that which is religious. Cast yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you. Babylon is about defining the people of God from a religious point of view. Daniel um, and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are the prime actors in this regard, in that they refuse Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego at the pain of being burned alive. They refuse to accept an identity based on Babylonian imagery, Babylonian idolatry, the worship of the creation rather than the Creator. For they fashioned in Babylon images derived from their understanding of nature, flying lions, men who are like uh, uh, oxen that are like the face of men, counterfeits of divine intentions, made to look alike eternal things, but cast entirely in the mould of creation. Because what did Adam do once he fell from an identity defined by who his father was, when he separated himself from God. Well, he defined himself by reference to the creation around him. He knew that creation around him all had clothing of some kind, whether feathers or skins or or scales. So he clothed himself with fig leaves, Again, my my friend Thamo is very perceptive and very incisive when he talks about how people clothe themselves with unsustainable positions and he refers to those unsustainable positions as with their fig leaves. He's right, Uh, the, the, the fig leaves were the result of man viewing himself, not in his relationship to God, for if he did, he would be clothed with the glory of God and he would not appear naked because the brilliance of God's glory would obscure the human form and we'd be revealed with Christ. When Christ who is our lives appear, will appear with him in the glory of his appearing. So Adam and Eve were not naked, they were clothed in light. Now, the plan of Satan was to have Jesus identify himself falsely by reference to religion. So he's taken to the pinnacle of the temple and told to demonstrate his sonship in the context of religion. And so Jesus says to him, 
you're falsely presenting the truth. I am the Son and you you do not set up the model for my proving that I am the Son. Indeed, I do not need to prove anything to you. Now, the third thing that he does when both of those temptations fail is he has to threaten you. He has to threaten you. He took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, fall down and worship me and I'll give them to you because you don't really have any option. Now that model today, the threat today, is what was prophesied multiple times in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation and it takes the form of predatory kingdoms. Four great beasts arose up out of the sea, the sea of humanity as the the record indicates. Now, these predatory kingdoms are all of the same spirit. They devour, they oppress, they trample down humanity. And over history and in history, over historical times and in history, whether Israel or other nations consumed mankind, mankind, whether Israel or other nations, were consumed by these creatures, by these four types or three types. So the fourth of these is presented in Daniel 7 and it's presented as a polyglot, a kingdom of multiple, of multiples, kingdoms in the form of systems. One singular beast comprised of seven heads or rather of ten horns in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, the thirteenth chapter, this editor of seven heads, so seven heads and ten horns. Now, this great beast as presented in Daniel crushes and devours its victims and tramples down that which is is left. So he's indiscriminate in subjugating all of mankind except, except that nation that is the compendium of what is represented by the Son, the man in the image and likeness of God. And we've said in the previous recording, there are various ways to define this man. He may be defined as uh, the the, the body of which Christ is the head. He may be defined as the bride of which Christ is the husband. Uh, He may be described as the army of which Christ is the captain. 
and he may be described as the kingdom of which Christ is the king. Now the one description that is not allegorical is it may be described as the family of God, the sons of God. That's not an an assigned nomenclature, that is an actual reference. He is, this man is the Son of God and therefore in the aggregate he is the family of God because he is God's heir inasmuch as he has an inheritance, a clairou. And it's this inheritance that distinguishes him and causes the hubris of his enemy to rise in full fury against this man. So in the book of Revelation then, we begin to see the presentation of the consummate expression of that which opposes the saints. Now, that expression is the cosmos, what is referred to as in the aggregate the kingdoms of this world. It's referred to in the Greek as the cosmos, of which the God of this world is the, of that world is the cosmocrator, a synonym for Satan. And all of the, the presentations of this kingdom are consistent with the term cosmos, which is an arrangement, an orderly arrangement of systems governed and ruled by the cosmocrator, who in turn bequeaths his power to the beast and this beast then begins to oppress and oppose the saints in all of the fullness of what this beast represents. Now the manner in which he opposes the saints is quite interesting. Whereas he tramples down, tramples down, crushes and devours uh, the whole earth with its bronze, he does that with his bronze teeth and iron claws. This is what he does to the saints. He wages war against them with a little horn that when it comes up on one of the heads, and we may, we may aptly call this head the religious head, because this horn overthrows three others, so there remains a total of eight. This horn is given a mouth that speaks blasphemous things against the Most High God and against the saints. Well, that would be religious speak. It presents the falsehood in the place of what is true. And the intent then is a propaganda war. The fight is over what is the truth. To the extent that he gains any victory over the saints, it is because there is a great falling away. A great falling away occurs when the truth has been restored 
and it brings an accountability of the darkness of deception in which men have dwelt and measures the people of God, measures the city, measures its gates, walls, and foundations. So when there is such a thing going on, there will be declarations as to what things are false and what things measure up to this eternal standard. So part of the success of the beast, or so uh, so it would appear, part of the success of the opposition is that there actually is a great falling away because he's managed to cloak himself with the respectability of the truth, with the respectability of what appears to be the truth. And in that, he manages to deceive those who do not love the truth. And therefore, those are those who are perishing. But the Lord knows his own, and he has clearly indicated and given us every indication that we shall be protected and cared for. The people who need to worry about being consumed in this conflict of ideas at the end of the age are really those who have pretended to be the body of Christ. But with the coming forth of the authentic standard presented as if it is the truth presented as the truth, their fruitless works of darkness will be disclosed. There's no hiding. It would appear that because this lawlessness abounds and because the love of most will become cold, it will appear as though the opposition won. There will be a great falling away. If it were possible, it would deceive, this, this deception would entrap even the very elect, if it were possible, which is to the extent that it is possible. Scripture said, many shall fall and be refined. And in that regard, it would appear that Satan won. If you're counting noses, it would definitely appear that he won. But God has always spoken of a remnant being saved. A remnant who overcomes, and overcomes by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they did not prefer to save their lives even unto death. Now to those who have overcome. And this is what you have to overcome. People want to be overcomers and they don't believe you have to overcome anything. You know, if you're going to be an overcomer, you've got to overcome things. You've got to overcome something. 
And the thing to be overcome is this opposition. And so the book of Revelation shows the compendium, the, the collecting up of this opposition in the form of this kingdom, uh, which has the authority of Satan to oppress the world and to wage war against the saints in this manner. And finally, the book of Revelation speaks of not only how judgment is given to the saints and the beast is destroyed, but the wrath of God is poured out against mankind and against the beast that collaborated in the opposition of the saints. And you know who gets to order the pouring out of the, of the bowls of God's wrath? The seven of these bowls given to seven angels? You know who gives the bowls to the angels? The four living creatures. That which represents the glorified order of the saints. We get to decide the when these bowls are poured out. And God decides the what. Because as creation is summarized, only that which is the man in the image and likeness of God ultimately has any value. Mankind, apart from that which is found in the image and likeness of God, God says has no value. God says has no value. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And that's the first psalm summarized in the book of Revelation. So as we continue now, as we continue in the subsequent uh, discoveries from the book of Revelation, it will be amazing how previous passages of Scripture from the Old Testament and from the beginning of the record, from Genesis onward, will be those exact things referred to in the book of Revelation and they'll flow within this pathway that we have now established. Behold, these great, these great mysteries are being revealed. Thamo, uh, whom I've quoted before in this, once said that um, we will plunder the heavens and we'll have the revealing of the mysteries in the appointed times of the Lord. And he's right. And this is the day when God is making available to his holy apostles and prophets the mysteries that have been hidden for long ages past. These mysteries are the children's bread and these are the times in which the mysteries are being revealed. Jesus called these times the beginnings of sorrows.
in Matthew 24, and he is the greatest of the prophets. All right, we shall continue from this point uh, to, to unpack more of the book of Revelation as it is written. Grace and peace be with you. Be steadfast, be unmovable, don't look back. Times are never going to go back to anything that we used to call normal because all of this that is written in the book is going to continue to unfold and those things written are actually determining the nature and the character of the times in which we live. Amen. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.